1: This month on Decompliance Life, I visit with Valerie Charles. Valerie has one of the most interesting journeys to and from the CCO chair. After sitting in the CCO chair, she realized the need for an integrated tech solution for compliance, so she went to a tech startup, Gan Integrity. She then moved to consulting at Stone Turn. We conclude this month with Valerie Charles on The Compliance Life by looking at the CCO function in 2025 and beyond. I know you'll enjoy this month on The Compliance Life. In Episode 2, Valerie moves to ComTech at Gann Integrity.
0: The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a Chief Compliance Officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and they'll be right back with Valerie Charles on The Compliance Life. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode in this month's Compliance Into the Weeds with Valerie Charles. Valerie, uh, at the end of episode one, you told us that you had moved from private practice to an in-house position. I was wondering if you could step back and tell us uh, how did that move occur uh, and why you made the move?
0: Well, Tom, it, you know, I have to say it wasn't in my plan. I think I, like most lawyers in law firms who, who like the work, I think you assume you'll stick around and partner. And, you know, that's just sort of the, the ladder that you're climbing. Um, it, it really started with a cold call from a recruiter. Um, and she was lovely. And she told me this is a great, you know, opportunity. It's with a dynamic tech company. They're doing, you know, IoT, Internet of Things, there's big data and all of this kind of Mover and shaker stuff, which at that time was just extremely, you know, hot. You no, know, it was not as many, not as many people doing it at that at that time. And I thought, well, this, you know, certainly sounds interesting. But when she described the job and that it was going to involve being the global, the singular, you know, global lead for compliance and really kind of establishing, creating a compliance program, I, I frankly told her, you know, I, I'm not sure that. Um, I'm qualified for this job. I mean, I was probably, I had practiced, I don't know, eight years or something like that, but mostly I I did a little bit of compliance in the law firm, but I was, you know, primarily doing active federal criminal investigation. And so I, um, I wasn't sure if I was the right fit, but she really assured me that they were looking for someone who could come in with fresh eyes. They didn't want someone from a, you know, a lateral position from another in-house role. Um, and frankly, that they would give me the budget to, to have the help that I needed to do the risk assessment and all the other stuff that I would need to do to kick it off. Um, and it was truly the best move I ever made. It was a really strange move at the time. I, um, listen, doing white collar work in a big law firm is, uh, exhausting. It's hard on your personal life. Um, you're always waking up in some country and, you know, you don't know where you are and you might be able to identify whether you're in a, you know, Marriott or a Weston, but, but, (laughs) you know, that's about all you'll know when you wake up in the morning. And it's, it's just, you know, it takes a toll. And I, I looked at the partners um, at my, my law firm at the time and thought, you know, do they have it easy street? I mean, is this something where, You know, it's the 1980s, and you make partner, and then you can kick back, and all the associates do the work and you just relax and golf or something. I mean, it's in, and and the answer was no. I mean, everybody was still working themselves to the bone, um, kind of all the way through. And I, I just think that that for me, that was not something I wanted to do long term. I did not have a husband, I did not have kids, but I could not have ever fathomed doing any of those things um, that I was doing with a husband or kids. And so I I think, you know, there was a lifestyle component. um, And then also, frankly, it was just a new challenge. It was like, you know, maybe I can go in and kind of figure this out. I'm a a tinkerer. You know, I just, I I literally just watched Tinkerbell with my four-year-old at Christmas. And I realized, you know, I'm a tinkerer. I like to kind of get in there and tinker around and see if I can figure out what's happened and what's going on and how to make things better. And, um, that's what I did really with AGT. I mean, I, I got in there and did a very comprehensive, uh, risk assessment and figured out, you know, where we had some weaknesses and, and tried to try to plug them up.
1: Valerie, as you know, I have a podcast called innovation and compliance. And in that podcast, I interview lots of entrepreneurs, some of whom will look at a problem, Uh, the same amount of time that you or I might, and they see a different solution, or they see a business opportunity. I've heard your story before uh, about your in-house experience, and you really almost went the opposite way, but it was equally intuitive. You looked at the situation you were in in terms of the number of vendors and apps and other outside resources you needed and you saw the need for something. Could you walk us through your experience in-house and how you came to see the need for a tech solution in compliance?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, it was it was interesting that, you know, to stand up a program where we truly didn't have anything. We had training, which was being handled, you know, by our HR team. But other than that, there were, there were no uh, tech solutions at that time to handle due diligence, to handle conflicts of interest, to handle um i'm trying to think about like you know how, how concur was managed and just looking at employee expense and you know red flags that that might be associated there. All of this stuff was was being done manually. And I realized, you know, I, I don't want to do all this manually because I didn't have uh, enough hours in the day and I didn't have a lot, enough headcount. You know, it was really me, a couple paralegals, and then some people that were deputized to be, you know, eyes and ears of the compliance program in our offices around the world. Um, but I didn't have a big team. And so all of the lift of kind of monitoring the day-to-day compliance related information, also known as data, um, you know, was 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 too hard. And so I ended up purchasing, I mean, several solutions, um, to handle what was really not a huge, not a huge program. I mean, the, the company at that time had, I don't know, 2000 employees or something. I mean, it was not a huge company. Um, we did work in some risky parts of the world, but, but again, I mean, these solutions theoretically, because we were not replacing other solutions, and we did not have some massive employee base, it should have been easy and painless. And it was anything but. It was so difficult to get these various solutions implemented. It took 10 times longer than you know anyone told me in the sales process. <laughs> and I was frustrated. I mean, I was super frustrated. And by, and by the end, I just kind of had this realization like this cannot be I, the way to do this. This can't be the way to do this. And I, I remember talking one Christmas to my brother, um, who had always been a tech person, you know, he'd built and sold a couple companies before he was even 40. And he he sort of said, look, you know, you need to get into reg tech, you know, some kind of legal tech. Um, but the first thing you need to do is find a problem. You can't, you can't solve a problem until you've identified a problem. And so I remember talking with him specifically about this seeming like a pretty big problem, like that this was just wildly inefficient. And if it was this hard for me at a company this small, you know, what was this like for companies that have, you know, a 100,000 plus employees globally? Um. So anyway, from, from there, I really started networking in tech. I spent probably the next year going to lots of um, tech mixers. I, you know, I did tech meetups. I did um, some kind of informal classes in New York. Um, and eventually I met through a website called AngelList, um, a founder called Thomas Sehested. Um, he had built and sold an anti-piracy technology uh, that had been a big, big success, major exit, sold it to Thomson Reuters. Um, and he was looking to do something specifically in compliance, um, really kind of for all the reasons that that I was having the same conversation with my brother about him. Mean, it was a year later by the time I met Thomas, but when he began to pitch me what he was thinking, it was essentially very similar to what I had been talking about in terms of identifying the problem uh, in the conversation with my brother. And so it seemed, I you know, it seemed like kismet. It was like, if I don't take this opportunity now, I should probably stop talking about tech startup and stop going to mixers and networking and tech because, you know, this is it. I mean, it was like, this is, this is the perfect fit where my expertise, particularly in anti-corruption was going to be really important to what we, what we wanted to build. Um, so yeah, I just, I honestly just took the leap. I mean, it was a huge, it was a huge pay cut. It was a huge personal risk. You know, you always know if you, if you do something like that, um, you're going to have to explain it later, potentially. And I think it would have been hard to explain to somebody, um, you know, if I tried to go back to a law firm, for example, um, you know, why, why would I have done this bizarre left turn in my, in my CV? Um, and luckily I didn't really end up in a situation where I had to explain it, but, um, (laughs) but it was a crazy move at the time. Um, I'm, I'm really glad I did it.
1: Uh, so I, I met you, uh, after you moved over to Gann and, uh, we both, uh, spoke together at some events we may have even authored a paper or two, but uh, tell us about your GAN experience. And, and I really want uh, maybe to lead in, how do you think it made you either down the road, a better lawyer, a better consultant, or really rounded out the kind of suite of Valerie?
0: <laughs> the suite of Valerie. I like that. Um, I I think that, look, I had never really been knowledgeable about you know, technology or data. I mean, I really knew my my difficult experience in implementing a bunch of technology solutions uh, at a company, and that was it. Um, I think building again integrity was was such a pleasure because I learned all of these interesting things about sales and about marketing and about you know how to track ROI and you know all of these all of these kind of business school lessons. Um, I think more importantly. Though I learned about data, and 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 what it is, and how to not be afraid of it, I think that um, you know we we lawyers tend to. This is not everyone, but I think there is a tendency to think of ourselves as, you know, people in the humanities. You know, we're the people who study political science, and we study history, or we study English, or something. But we're not typically coming from that engineering part of the brain, that tech part of the brain. We don't usually have majors unless you're a patent lawyer, you don't, you know, usually have an engineering undergrad degree. And I think, I think it was daunting to me at first kind of coming into this new world where I was working closely uh, with my R and D team in Copenhagen. And, and, you know, they were using t- terminology. I didn't know. And there was a big, just kind of learning curve with it. But at the end of the day, data is just information. I mean, that's it. Like, you know, what is data information? What is big data lots of information <laughs> you know it's it's not super complicated and I think you know you can always parse it you can always think um, you know what if I were able to compare this bit of information and this bit of information what might it tell me you know whenever I'm, I'm dealing with clients now and and they want to do a data analytics project you know I, I, I try to talk with people and, and have them think through if I had a hunch, You know, like if I had the ability to know this, this data set against this data set would cause this behavior or or maybe this behavior is, I think it's being caused by X and Y, but I don't really know because I can't, these are, you know, siloed bits of information. And I want to instead look at them and slice and dice them in a way that I can test my hunches. I think I think that whole process that I that I can do now with clients and that ends up typically being, you know, you get all your money back. Right. You know, you kind of you find you find the ROI and what you're doing in data analytics. And that's that's part of the point. Um, but I think I, I think I just didn't understand anything about this before. I think I was very nervous about it. And, and now you find compliance leaders who are more comfortable with it. Um, you find some that are extremely comfortable with it. Um, you know, then you find others that are still, you know, kind of don't know how to to embark on the the data journey. You know, what does it mean, data analytics? What does it mean, kind of trying to um, get your arms around your your program data and and to have ownership over it? I mean, so much of what truly is compliance data sits with finance or sits with HR or sits somewhere outside of the organization, such that, you know, you find yourself asking others in the organization for your data, when in fact, you shouldn't have to ask them, it's it's compliance data, and you're the compliance leader. And I think as I've seen compliance leaders kind of grow and develop and, and get a little bit more comfort with the fact that um, data is part of the role, um, you know, you're seeing a little bit more ownership over data. But anyway, I, I think to answer your, your question in a really long-winded way, um, I think that my time in tech gave me a um, a comfort, you know, speaking the vocabulary and, and really starting to think about the power that kind of lies in all of this information that that isn't particularly useful until you start to look at it all together.
1: Well, Valerie, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our uh, listeners will join us in our next episode where you move from the tech world back out into the consulting world with Stone Turn. I greatly look forward to continuing this conversation.
0: Thanks so much, Tom.
1: Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes, Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.